And Merry Christmas from me also to you. About 6,000 years ago, over a six-day period of time, the Bible says God created the physical universe. It reads like this in Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. So before the first day, there was no physical light, although the Bible says that God is light. So he was the only light that existed before that first day. On day six, I'm going to skip day two, three, four, and five, with your permission, on day six, God breathed life into Adam and Eve. In the physical world, they had both light and dark, daytime, nighttime. In John chapter four, the Bible says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So Adam and Eve worshiped God, They walked with him in the garden, and there was no spiritual darkness at all, even though they had daytime and nighttime. But we know the story of what happened. Adam and Eve sinned, they fell, and they rebelled against God. Daytime and nighttime continued, but they were now in spiritual darkness. They were unable to worship God in the way that God had originally intended. Now, what God does throughout Scripture is he gives us a glimpse into spiritual reality using physical things that we can all identify with. The Old Testament talks about a time of harvest. On that time of harvest, which is a a very important time for an agrarian culture, during that time, you had to get it just right. Jesus used the harvest time in a spiritual context when he said this, Say you not, there are yet four months, and then comes harvest? Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, and look in the fields, for they are white already to harvest. That was a spiritual event behind the physical reality. The Old Testament talks about food. We can all identify how important that is. Maybe some of you are identifying faster than others. Physical life is in necessary or food is important for physical life. The disciples knew that and they went into the town to buy food. They came back in order to encourage Jesus to eat some food because he was wearied. And this is what he said, my food is to do the will of him that sent me. Spiritual reality behind the physical event. The Old Testament talks about water. Water is critical to human life. Moses got water from the rock. Joseph and others, Jacob especially, dug wells in order to get water. When Jesus was with with the woman at the well, this is what he said, whoever drinks of of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, 
But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. So water and food and harvest and light, there's a spiritual event behind those physical realities that we can all identify with. Ever since Adam, all mankind have been in spiritual darkness, absolute spiritual darkness, until a certain day that happened, and John references that in his apostle. He starts out using the same three words that were used in Genesis. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Later on, John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you've ever traveled south on I-5 and gone into California, you go past Mount Shasta, and there's the Shasta Caverns. How many of you have been inside the Shasta Caverns? Just a couple of us. Okay. Well, you get in a boat, you have to go across, the, across Lake Shasta and into the caverns, and as soon as you leave the entrance, if there were not lights, it would get dark. The treat is to have the tour guide take you down in your well into the caverns, into a large room, and then they turn the lights out. And it's completely dark. And when I say completely dark, I mean, you, there's no way that you would see anything. I think the supervisors tell the tour guide, keep your hand on the switch. Because if you take your hand off the switch and you lose it, you're not going to find it. it. You can't see it. But it's worse than this. Spiritually, it's worse than this for us. Not only are you in darkness, but you're blindfolded. And not only are you blindfolded, but you're chained to a rock. That's our spiritual situation without Christ. But if, when he comes, he can take the blindfold off, he can cut the chain, and he can light a lamp. And at least you can see your feet as you try to walk out of the cave. So I'm using that physical reality, total darkness. That's our spiritual condition without Christ. Later on, we're going to light little candles. If that isn't true for you, if spiritual light isn't true for you, contact somebody here. Talk to Tim or me or Bill. And ask the question, what, what does this mean to, be, to not have spiritual darkness? You understand physical light and darkness. What does it mean to have spiritual darkness? Ask the question. There's an answer. See, you didn't know you were going to be treated to three sermons. <laughs> so I'm going to read a little bit of a passage that we don't read as often as we do in Luke. 
uh, starts with Matthew chapter 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will be shepherd for my people, of his, of my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what the time of the star, what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, so that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own, to their own country by another way. So thinking about this passage, I realize that there's some real, um, kind of some interesting anecdotes that we should all apply. And especially when we hear this word, like, to, to seek Jesus, that the wise men came seeking him, seeking the child who was born, see, uh, seeking the king that was born. So just a couple anecdotes that I want to share with you and just kind of uh, illuminate a little bit. These kings came from a really long distance. Um, this morning, I, I took a, a Google Maps uh, lookup and said, what would it take for me to drive from uh, Mesopotamia in Babylon uh, all the way to Jerusalem or Bethlehem here? And according to Google Maps by car, it's about 11 hours and 32 minutes. It's quite a bit of distance. But then off to the side, Google tells you you're going to cross many, uh, many country, uh, country boundaries there's extreme desert, so it's lots of warnings. And I was thinking, wow, I'm getting those kind of warnings to drive by car. And these men, however many of these wise men, they were traveling by animal. Crossing a great desert. <clears throat> According to Ezra chapter 7, he talks about this journey being about four months long. And these kings, or these, these magi, these wise men, they weren't people that were just kind of sitting around watching TV. They were important. They were well studied. They gathered wealth. They were making wealth. They were helping kings. They were counseling to the wisest among us. And they took time, maybe four months, maybe it was longer. They took four months to travel a desert to seek a baby that was born in an insignificant place, in a very seemingly, to my eyes, to your eyes, to the world's eyes, an insignificant way. But they came to worship him. 
Imagine the time and the expense that was spent to make this trip. Well, we can see that they, were, they had means, so maybe the expenses of, of material goods, their resources, eh, it was probably pittance to them. But imagine the time commitment. Imagine what they went through to seek this baby. So I asked myself, what is it that I value the most? Jesus talked about the pearl of great price. That for his kingdom, a man was willing to give up everything for the kingdom of heaven. And I think we see that in these three wise men. So what is the rarest thing? Because that which is the rarest among us is what we value the most. That's the thing. If you've got a lot of money, you probably don't value money as much as you value time, perhaps. Maybe you have all the time and the money, but you really value relationships because maybe you've spent a lot of your life investing in time and money. So whatever it is that you value the most, if you can hold it in your hand, would you make the trade to seek Jesus with all that is in you? In 1 Peter chapter 1, we're called to be holy because our God is holy. Peter says this, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, that lamb without blemish or spot. So God gave what was most precious to him in exchange for your rags. Would you make that trade, the most precious thing for you, would you make that trade for him? And I know looking around the room, I know many of you are believers and lovers of God and have been for many years. But I find myself having to ask myself this question. As our, as our world seems to be overcrowded by darkness that's creeping in in ways that unimaginable, what is it that I'm holding on to? Because if it's anything other than the light that's coming to the world, I'm lost. The wise men heard and listened to God's instructions. Herod told him, hey, when you hear, when you receive word, come back to me so that I can worship him. With their fingers crossed, right? We don't know that that was Herod's aim. In fact, we think it wasn't. But they went another way. So they went from Jesus another way. Why? Because God had told them in a dream to go another way. So when you've met Jesus, the person of Jesus, you will find yourself in that situation. Maybe it's a microtransaction. God's way, my way. God's way, the world's way. God's way, the cares of this world way. The wisdom of God, well, Proverbs 14 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And even as somebody who's loved God, believed God for many years, I have to remember that. 
God exists and he requires absolute accountability to him. There will be a reckoning. There will be a time when all things are held in account. And we know that there's only one way to please God. And if the kids were up here, they would be ready to shout this out. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must first believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. I think I hear some of the kids whispering it back there. Jesus, the light that's coming into the world, is the absolute only answer to the sin problem. And if you don't know what the sin problem is, you see the effects of the sin problem all around you. I encourage you, give up whatever it is you're holding to. If it's not the light of the world, I encourage you, give that up and seek the baby born in Bethlehem. The last anecdote is to encourage others to seek him. Proverbs chapter 11, in the context of a wise man, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. If you know this, if you hold these truths to be just dear to your heart, whoever captures souls is wise. Invest in the tree of your family. Invest in your lineage. Invest in those older than you that are nearer to the end of their tree's life. Thank you. You are going to get a little sermonette, bite size. This thing was going on, and it was about this time of year, and it was really, really cold and windy up in Alaska. And there was a hospital got a call that in a, one of the remote villages up in Alaska that there was a boy who had run out of insulin, and because of the difficult conditions, his regular shipment couldn't be made. And so one of the, they called one of the local airports and a bush pilot said, I will take this medicine up there because without it, the boy was going to die. And they told him, well, you know, it's, it's getting late. By the time you get there, it'll be dark. And there'll be no way for you to find this place if you get off course because they're going to set up some lights, but it's basically a grass strip and it's there's no airport tower there's no airport itself there's just a little grass runway for you to land at this village and so it's very imperative that you plot your course and follow it exactly so he had promised i will get this medicine up to this boy no matter what it takes well he took off and one of, the, one of the other pilots said, you know, if, you, if you're smart, stick to the coast. Then you'll be able to know if you're staying on course and then veer right and go inland when you have gotten to the right place. And he thought, well, that's going to take me longer. And I'm in a big hurry. This, I don't know how long this boy will last. So he went straight towards the airport. What he didn't know was that there was a 25-mile-an-hour crosswind and he was being blown off course. And eventually, 
he was unable to find the airport. He was so far off course that he eventually ran out of gas, crashed, and died. And the boy who needed the medicine also died. You think, wow, that's a real hopeful story to tell at Christmas time. <laughs> Here's my point. We can have all kinds of good intentions when we make promises. However, how many of you have ever made a promise that you had the best intentions of keeping but could not because of outside circumstances? It happens all the time. Guess what? That's not God. That's not God. Um, nobody gets in the middle of God's plan and puts it off course. Nobody. God had a plan, the most important plan that human beings could ever participate in, and that was to become, instead of an object of God's wrath, which we all deserved, it says in Ephesians. All of us deserved wrath. We all were dead in our trespasses and sins. And God says, no, I have a plan. I have a plan to both reconcile you back to me and restore you back to this original design so that you can enjoy eternity forever with me, in intimacy with me and one another, and it will be so amazing, you can't even imagine it. And I have a plan. And there are aspects to this plan that have to happen. And here were some of the aspects of this most important plan. It required God to come to earth as a man, as God, and to die. And that'd be really cool, right? For us. But how cool would it be if God was like us and he couldn't actually keep his promises because something else happened and, and Jesus was on his way, but ah, something went wrong. And Mary and Joseph couldn't get to the stable and Jesus was born out in the wilderness and just died. But God was in control of everything, everything, every detail. God is sovereign. Nothing, absolutely nothing, praise God, could stop him from realizing his plan. And that is good for us. So an example of that, if we look at the title of this, we heard from Bill that wise men came. And how in the world did they know that they were supposed to go and they were supposed to go. And in fact, there was absolutely no other option because 700 years prior, 700 and some, depending on which one we're going to be talking about, so Psalm 72.10, May the kings of Tarshish and the upper coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Sheba bring him gifts. And then in Isaiah 60, Verses 3 and 6. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And then Isaiah 60, verse 6. A multitude of camels will cover you, and the young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all of those from Sheba will come, and they will bring the gifts of gold and frankincense, and they will bring the good news, the praises of the Lord. 700 years before this happened, this was prophesied by the prophets Isaiah and David. There were no other choices because this had to happen because God said it would. And they brought gifts, and we heard that, and Bill read, and they, they came, they saw the baby, and they opened their, their packages of gifts and gave to them gold, frankincense, 
and myrrh. Now, how many of you have heard that, right? I mean, they even, we sing about it. We sing song, Christmas carols about it. Um, do you understand or have you ever heard the significance of those gifts? How many elements of the plan did I say we had to have? Three. How many gifts are mentioned? Three. What were the elements of the plan? It had to be a man. God says, no, I will come and come as a man. I will fulfill the old covenant. I will be your advocate in front of me. I will have gone through all of the things you experienced, and I will have done it perfectly. I needed to come as a man. But only God could pay the price to redeem you from the consequences of your sin. So it had to be a man, had to be God, and he had to die. And so we look at these three gifts. The gift of gold. This is something that they would give to kings. This is, this is a gift that they would give to a man who is the king, who is the royalty, who is the ruler. And so they came and they brought gold to the baby Jesus, knowing as a man he would be the king. Then they brought the, the gift of frankincense. Frankincense was this thing that they used at the high priest of the Jews would give at the time when he was going to uh, give the sacrifice for the atonement of Israel. They would use frankincense as part of that process. So this was a symbol that this was God. They were presenting frankincense to God, the, the high priest, as an offering and a sweet-smelling fragrance to God. And so they were bringing this frankincense, knowing that what we are presenting to is God. And then finally, the gift of myrrh, which was an ointment used in the embalming process. And so all three gifts, which were prophesied centuries before, symbolized the gifts that would recognize this baby as a man, as God, and then he would die. So we can take that as confidence that God had a plan and nothing was going to happen to change it. So we can recognize that when God says, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will be saved. That's nice to know. I don't know how many times you know, we've, we've been in our lives and we've, we've had promises made to us and we were disappointed. This one will never disappoint you. And as, as, as uh, John said, if that is something, and maybe I don't know if we're going out on the stream or not, but if you're here and you are not a follower of Christ, today is the day to accept his gifts to you. Reconciliation, restoration, and eternal life with God.